0: Father, we are united together this morning by the spirit of the living God who indwells the hearts of all believers. And we thank you for your love, your grace, your keeping power, for the strength you give us each and every day. And Lord, we pray that you will be present with us during this hour now in a special way, making your word strong in our hearts, clear to our minds, and truly a lamp unto our feet. I ask, Lord, that throughout our Sunday school this morning, in each class, you will be vitally present, touching each life, and in the service which is going on at this time, too, that you will minister your word to each and every heart. Lord, I thank you that we can trust in you and that you are the giver of peace, and we rest in that peace this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you will, I'd like for us to read this morning, beginning in the book of Exodus, chapter 10, 10th chapter of the book of Exodus, beginning at the first verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how i made a mockery of the egyptians and how i performed my signs among them that you may know that i am the lord and moses and aaron went to pharaoh and said to him thus says the lord the god of the hebrews how long will you refuse to humble yourself yourself before me let my people go that they may serve me for if you refuse to let my people go behold tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one shall be able to see the land. For they shall also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses will be filled and the houses of your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from that, from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. By the way, who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you, if I ever let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire so they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. One more time, Moses and Aaron are sent in before Pharaoh. This is such an oft-repeated scenario as you read through these first chapters of the book of Exodus. Through Through Moses and Aaron, at this point, God is specifically putting his finger on the heart of the problem. When he asks of Pharaoh how long, Will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The infinitive here, to humble, as used in this passage, is or presents to us one of the key teachings of all Scripture. Lucifer, in his rebellion, if you remember reading in uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, in his rebellion against God, chose to elevate himself to equality with God. So it was pride. That was the key to the fall of Lucifer in the beginning and has been the key to the fall of the human race. And that's the primary wall. That, the, the primary divider between us and God is pride. Human pride stands as that great divide. Men and women don't want to admit, and I think all of us can attest to this, either before we were converted or even after. We, we don't like to admit sometimes that we need God we like to think that we're capable of doing the job ourselves I can do it myself right that's one of the first things a young child learns to say I can do it myself and 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 that's really the character and nature of the human race all the way until many times we totter off into the grave We don't want God, we don't want to admit that we need someone besides ourselves, and we don't want God interfering in our lifestyle. I want to do my thing, and I don't want God telling me what I ought to be doing. (laughs) Even as Christians, sometimes we're hindered by pride, and that pride can break our fellowship with God and break our fellowship with one another. How many churches have been split over the issue, really, of pride. That's what it really boils down to in the last and final analysis, is pride. It's not a matter of a doctrine, often, of Scripture. It's it's not even really a matter of whether they could agree on a particular physical thing, maybe, uh, as a part of the church. It's pride, really. Who wants to yield to to another? I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus uh, used his example of washing the feet. Of one another because that's a pretty humiliating thing (laughs) to put yourself in the place in that society of what was a servant the lowliest of servants and, and do that servant task because that pretty well washes out pride to be effective christians we have to have in our heart and in our mind all the time the realization that it's important that we agree with god all the time We must agree that He is right and that when we are at odds with Him, we are wrong. I think all of us are very familiar with the Scripture, 1 John 1, 9, which is so often quoted, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's an important verse for us to remember. But we also must remember it's a conditional verse. It says, if, if we confess our sins. And that doesn't just mean that we go before God and say, yes, Lord, I, I committed this sin, and just verbalize something. That's part of it. But that verbalization has got to express a heartfelt conviction that we have sinned against God. We, we can't go in before God and, and say, well, God, you said it's sin, and so because you say it's sin, I guess it's sin, and so I'll confess it. But I don't really think it is. We have to come to the place where we agree along with God that, yes, it was sin, and I am very, very sorry that I have sinned. When that hard attitude matches our words, then we are meeting the conditions of this verse. And our minds and hearts are being changed into the conformity of Christ, the thoughts of Christ. Uh, If we decide, well, you know, that sin isn't all that serious. You know, God's making a big deal ab- about nothing, you know. That's the kind of attitude that got Adam and Eve in trouble in the Garden of Eden in the very first place. When they believed that they could be equal with God, which is to make a decision that we feel should stand before God, because, I mean, after all, we're capable, aren't we? And do we really need God in everything? That damns us to have that attitude. And throughout Scripture, you find God deals with what is a ubiquitous problem. I mean, it's the problem from the first chapters of the book of Genesis all the way through to the very end of the book of Revelation. God continues to deal with this same problem, the problem of human pride. It's a key issue in this passage. Pharaoh has an arrogance that won't quit. After all, he's the son of God according to his theology, and he's been taught that ever since he was a child. He grew up believing he was the Son of God. And how should the Son of God have to bow before the God of of slaves? A God who doesn't even have an image of all things. I mean, all of the Egyptian gods were presented in a physical form. They were painted on the tombs of the Egyptian pharaohs and other important personages. And there were even statues here and there carved of some of the Egyptian gods. But but this invisible God, how, how does he fit into the program? Pharaoh doesn't get the point. God is seeking for the submission of Pharaoh, not just for the sake of Israel, but also for the sake of Egypt. Because think about it. If Pharaoh had yielded to God in the beginning... Egypt would have been spared all these plagues that took place. But Pharaoh was not about to yield. I think it's important for us to realize that although the Egyptian plagues are examples of an extreme, God often uses affliction to encourage repentance, to encourage humility and obedience. I'd like to read a couple of verses from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 2 and 3. The book of Deuteronomy uh, deals with several addresses that Moses gives as sort of the uh, going away uh, message before he is to die. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy is recorded his death. Uh, But he gives a whole series of addresses. And in this particular one, he says, beginning in verse 2, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. A really difficult concept for the human mind to grasp because we are raised with with this belief that our primary purpose in life is to make a living. And it is important that we make a living, but it cannot be our primary purpose because that's exactly what God is dealing with them uh, as God dealt with them in the wilderness so that they would know that trying to survive till tomorrow and having food to make it till the next day is not the primary goal in life. The primary goal in life is to know God. And God allows a measure of affliction into every life that we are reminded of this truth, as He did before Israel. I He led them in a wondrous way through the wilderness, miraculously through the Red Sea, and provided water for them in the desert, and food that dropped on the ground every morning. I mean, God was with them. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. Can you imagine? Of course, in our society, we wouldn't want that, because the styles would change 20 times, and we wouldn't want shoes that wore like iron. I mean... But God did all these things, but with this there came a measure of affliction. It was hard in the desert. The wind did blow like it is today, only it whipped sand into their faces and into their tents and into their manna. You know, and and you know the sun was hot, and there were bugs around, and there were reptiles around, and you know, it was boring. Uh, I mean, God didn't make it a, a Garden of Eden all over again. He didn't give them a, quote, Disneyland in which to live. Uh, there was a measure of affliction because God wanted them to know that material prosperity cannot be their ultimate goal. This was important for them to know because they were going to walk into a turnkey country. They were going to walk into a country which they had to capture by warfare, but the Orchards were in and were producing fruit. The vineyards were in and were producing fruit. The fields had been planted and the grain was growing. They were walking into a country that was ready for the the houses were built and the cities were built. And, And you know, just walking in the midst of all that prosperity, they could easily turn away from God if they didn't know affliction along the way. If they didn't know that the ultimate goal was spiritual prosperity, not material prosperity. I think that's one of the misconceptions that comes along with the health and wealth gospel that's being preached today by many. I mean, I'm not against health and I'm not against wealth. You know, that's, it's, it's wonderful. But a person can lose his focus because our goal is God. Our goal is not necessarily to always be healthy nor to be wealthy. Our goal has got to be to serve Him whether He gives us health or gives us wealth or not. And uh, looking around at most of us, <laughs> We, we don't have all that much wealth, probably, and uh, we can thank God for the measure of health that brings us here today, upright. <laughs> We're able to walk in here today or get here somehow, and we have to be thankful to the Lord for that. The psalmist acknowledged that God allows f- affliction for the good of his people. Uh, let me just quote uh, to you from Psalm 119, where we read this, "'I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. You know, we have a tendency to say that everything bad comes from the devil and everything good comes from God, and basically that is true. Of course, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning, we're told in James. But as you read through Scripture, you can understand that God also allows affliction. God brings affliction into the lives of both the believers and the unbelievers for His eternal purpose. And this keeps showing up over and over again throughout Scripture. So, understanding this verse in the Psalms that that God brings affliction so that... His righteousness can be revealed is a key to our understanding how to be at peace in the midst of a storm. How to realize that when difficult times come, we can rest in the Lord. It's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do. It's easy to go up to someone who's going through a terrible time and pat them on the back and say, well, have peace, young man, have peace. God is with you. (laughs) But how does that person have peace until they come to understand through the Word of God that God has not abandoned that person? God is working out something good and perfect in them. And it's a matter of standing true in the midst of the storm. God afflicted Pharaoh for his own good, but Pharaoh didn't understand that. And Pharaoh, of course, didn't yield to it at all. God, therefore, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we've read this in the passage. Now, I think again, it's important to understand that God does not stand up there in his heaven and look down at somebody like Pharaoh and say, give him a hard heart. Just turn him into a heart of stone right there on the spot. God hardened his heart because Pharaoh had already rejected God. Rejected his word, rejected his prophet, rejected all that God would do. He had rejected it, so God simply confirmed him in the hardness of his heart. And this is clear from many, many passages of Scripture. I'd like to, if we could, turn to the first chapter of Romans. And read beginning at verse 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven... "...against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew about God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. And and then he goes on. But notice the therefore. Because they refused to accept what had been clearly presented to them about God and to know Him in the true and uh, life-changing way, because of that, God gave them over to what they had committed themselves to do. He said, all right, you want it? You can have it. God gave them what they wanted. And that's what God is doing for Pharaoh. He's giving him what he wants. And that is total rejection of God. And God is confirming him in his hardness of heart. And since he persisted in his refusal to accept God, to submit to the work and the word of God, God sends the eighth plague upon Egypt. Plague of locusts. Now for us in our society, we probably have no concept of a plague of locusts. Sure, we've had a grasshopper or two here or there. I grew up in the Central Valley and every once in a while there were quite a few grasshoppers around, but nothing like like what the scripture talks about in this particular passage. The locust uh, has been a plague in the Middle East for thousands of years. Uh, it's been a plague in many other parts of the world too, particularly in Africa. The Hebrew word here is referring to what is known as the desert locust. There are, there are numerous varieties of locusts in the Middle Eastern area, but specifically the desert locust. This is one of the many species of grasshoppers which inherit, in, inhabits that part of the world, and Historically, this is the only one that has produced major problems in this part of the world. Because it's the only one that seems to multiply into gigantic numbers and then swarm. It's a, it's a grasshopper which runs about two and a half inches or so in length. And uh, travels in large groups. <laughs> They're very gregarious. In fact, the, uh, the uh, specific name is Gregaria. Uh, Schistocerca gregaria is the official name given to this particular bug, and I, I don't know who actually clocked these or, or, or studied these, but uh, I've read that they have been noted to fly nonstop 17 hours. You know. Now I've watched grasshoppers fly. And it didn't look to me like a grasshopper could fly 17 hours. It just did not look, I mean, it looks kind of ungainly sometimes when you see the thing flying. And some have seen swarms actually move 1,500 miles across the landscape. That, that's, that's interesting. But the problem with them is that they swarm in the billions. In fact, um, one statistic I read was that in 1889, they noted a plague of this particular grasshopper in Arabia, where it was estimated that they solidly covered an area of 5,000 square kilometers, be about half the size of uh, Shasta County, covered it just solidly with grasshoppers. You can imagine (laughs) what that would be like, I suppose. The, the swarms have been known to be so thick that they literally blacken the sky and, and you, know, you almost lose all light because uh, there are so many of them flying through the sky hour after hour. I guess the good thing about them is that they're strictly vegetarian, so you don't have to worry about them eating you if you happen to be out there. You just have to worry about them banging into you by the hundreds, I suppose. I've seen... Uh, a film shot of people out there with look like tennis rackets out there just swinging at the things, you know. But what are you going to do? Uh, how many people with tennis rackets are you going to get out there to deal with several billion grasshoppers, you know? <laughs> it's going to take a few to do much. But I guess in your frustration, that's as good as anything uh, to do. Shred a few grasshoppers. But, of course, what they do is eat everything in sight that is even looks like it's vegetation. And the only good thing about it is that they are, in turn, edible. They were very good this morning, in fact. Uh, <laughs> yuck. It's interesting that in uh, one, one of the books that I perused oh, several years ago, dealing with uh, early civilization in Mesopotamia, they showed that uh, they had discovered that one of the snacks that people used to be given if they visited somebody was a little stick on which were tied about half a dozen grasshoppers. They were, do- they were desiccated. They'd been dried. But that was what you gave a, a visitor so he could just pluck a grasshopper off and pop it in, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, have a nice little snack before dinner, you know, hors d'oeuvres or whatever but actually what's the difference we eat cattle and they eat grass so i mean what's wrong with eating a grasshopper after it eats grass and of course we know john the baptist you know ate locusts and honey some have tried to say well not locust refers to the pod of a plant like the carob that lives over there but you know i it's he ate grasshoppers Yeah, I can imagine what it would be like if you ate grasshoppers after they had been in a garlic field (laughs) or an onion field. The seriousness of this plague is indicated in the passage which we read from the book of Exodus this morning. It was an unprecedented infestation. I mean, the Egyptians had never seen anything like it before. When it says that, like your fathers have never seen since they came on the land of the earth, that's kind of a euphemism. in in, in Hebrew for it's never been like this before at any time in history. And so this vast infestation swept over the land of Egypt, totally covering the ground. And as Moses had warned from the lips of God, it will eat everything that the hail has not destroyed. Everything the hail has not destroyed. Well, as he had done on a few other occasions. Moses walked in before Pharaoh and he delivered that word to him and he spun around on his heel and he walked straight out. Tired of listening to Pharaoh argue with him. And so he just walked right out and left the royal palace and didn't give Pharaoh a chance to respond. Like it or lump it, this is what's going to happen. Well, what's interesting is the passage makes it clear that Pharaoh's advisors were in shock. I mean, this was the eighth time that something was predicted and they had seen that seven times before when this man Moses walked in and said thus saith the Lord this is going to happen it happened just as Moses had said and they are beginning to get the point here pharaoh's advisors are beginning to understand and they were fearful they were fearful that they were going to lose their land and maybe even lose their lives ultimately And so, finally, one of them becomes bold enough to go to Pharaoh and basically to say to him, how long are you going to let this go on? When are you going to bring a stop to this tragedy? You're the key here. You're the one that can let him go or no. What are you going to do? You can't just stand by and watch Egypt be destroyed because that's what's happening. So let the Israelites go before it's too late. But it's interesting, as we read that passage, though, you'll notice that even the advisors say to Pharaoh, let the men go. Let the men go. And Pharaoh takes that message from them and he calls his guard and he said, go fetch Aaron and Moses. And so they ran down the hallways and out into the courtyard, however far. Moses and Aaron had gotten by the time this conversation had occurred between Pharaoh and his advisors, and they called him back. And so Moses and Aaron returned to stand before Pharaoh. What was Moses expecting at this point? Was Moses just totally cynical now, or was Moses just experiencing the gift of discernment? Probably a little of both, actually. Momentarily, Pharaoh yields to his advisor's requests, and he says to Moses, go serve your God. Now, that would have been great if if Pharaoh had just shut up at that point. Go serve your God. But he says, "Uh, by the way, who's going to go? See, this guy has a heart that just is as hard as a brick, and he doesn't really get the point. But it's interesting how Moses reacts. And this, I think, is the key, is a key to how we need to deal with the situations that we face day by day in the world. Moses does not hedge one little bit. Moses could have said, well, uh, who would you like for us you know, to go? It was just the idea that maybe Pharaoh's going to really relent now and let us go. Well, we can give a little on this issue, can't we? No, Moses says, we're all going. Even our sheep and our goats and our cattle, I mean, everything is going. I mean, you know, Moses is holding the hard line. He's going for the entire thing. Now, Pharaoh's response in verse 10 sounds a little strange as we read about it. Uh, As we read it, translated there into English from the Hebrew, he says, "Thus may the Lord be with you. If I ever let you go, let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Now, uh, go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord." What he is basically saying there is, "Over my dead body." Not a good thing to say in the presence of God's prophet. Will all of you go? Because you've got something else up your sleeve besides just going out and having a festival in the wilderness. I mean, this guy's got the point. They're going and they're not coming back. Because why else would they have to take everything and everybody? It would be much seem to be more wise to leave your animals behind with a few shepherds and herdsmen to guard them. Leave all the little kids behind because, you know, they wouldn't understand anyway. Just take the adults out there. But no, everybody is going. serve the Lord. And I think Pharaoh turned to Moses with a ferocious expression on his face as he spoke to him and said, only the men are going to go. The families are staying here and you get out of my presence now. And he had the guards run Moses and Aaron right out the door before Moses could respond because he didn't want to hear Moses rebut him one more time. He is the sovereign king of the greatest nation of the world at that day he is god in the estimation of the egyptians and he is tired of being backed into the corner by this hebrew slave shepherd whose god he can't grasp and can't see but whose god has really made it tough on egypt up to this point point. and i think even in pharaoh's own mind he'd have to come to as i tried to make this a point oh, a couple sundays ago Uh, of realizing that the fact that he had not even laid his hands on Moses up to this point indicated the power of God because he could have had Moses executed the very first time Moses stood in his presence if he had so chosen. But God did not allow that to happen. Verse 12, Exodus 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And in the morning, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt, and they were very numerous. There had, not, there had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and you, and against you. Now therefore please forgive my sin only this once, And make supplication to the Lord your God that he will only remove this death from me. And he went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Moses went outside the palace Stood there in the middle of the city of Memphis and raised the staff of the Lord to the sky in obedience to the word of the Lord. And thus began the eighth plague. Can you imagine any Egyptian standing there who saw Moses do that and knew who he was and had seen him do it before? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh oh. <laughs> Is probably a mild way of putting it. They probably thought in their hearts, oh no, calamity comes again. What's the matter with Pharaoh? I think some of them were beginning to think Pharaoh wasn't so divine after all that maybe he was even a little bit of a nitwit. (laughs) Although they wouldn't dare say that in his presence. For nearly 24 hours, the east wind blew from Arabia, crossed into Egypt. I think it was a strong wind blowing for those 24 hours. And in the morning, anybody who was watching would have seen a horrifying sight. From over the horizon would begin to rise a very, very dark cloud. And this dark cloud would rise higher and higher and spread broader and broader. As it came closer and closer, the whole sky would be darkened in the direction of the rising sun. And over the land would come this vast cloud of buzzing grasshoppers. I think it would have been a frightful thing for anybody who watched it come, billions, billions, of these little critters blanketing the land. Can you imagine? you can even walk across the ground without crunch, crunch, crunch. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, they'd be flying into you from every direction. Um, a little unnerving, I would think. And like a gigantic vacuum cleaner, they just sucked everything green off the land, you know. <sharp> And every little blade of grass and every little shoot, even the weeds. you know, Every little green thing on a tree, it says the fruit. Everything was eaten as the grasshoppers nibbled everything. Uh, you probably have, as I have, watched maybe a moody science film or something, a close-up of a grasshopper, you know, and, and everything just goes, you know, and they just chew things up so quickly. One little grasshopper you can handle <laughs> eats a little bit. But it's kind of like piranhas, you know, little piranhas. Each one only takes a bite. But when you've got thousands of them, it can be pretty devastating. And so it was as the grasshoppers chewed up the countryside. Never in history had Egypt experienced a plague like this, and never again would it experience a plague of this magnitude. This was a divinely appointed plague. God does not need to actually have a certain number of grasshopper eggs laid in order to produce billions of grasshoppers. Now, I'm not saying he didn't. You know, he could have arranged it so the grasshoppers were more prolific the year before and made lots of eggs or whatever, and that, you know, in preparation for this. But but God doesn't need that. The billions of grasshoppers came at the call of God to spread across, as the Scripture says here, all of the land of Egypt. All of the land of Egypt. Well, Pharaoh was pretty distraught because his palace was not inviolate. He had grasshoppers everywhere in the palace. One good thing about it, if you're hungry, the snack's nearby, you know. (laughs) If you don't mind them raw, I suppose. But in verse 16, we read that he said something that he would never said before. He says, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. And in the 17th verse, it sounds like he's asking him to be his priest. Pray for me before God. Make supplication for me that this death will be removed from me and from this land. But Pharaoh is a reactor. He faces a situation and he reacts to it. He reacts to strong stimuli. But his heart isn't changed. He has not been changed one whit in his heart. When he says, I've sinned against you, against God and against you, he's not saying, he's not going to 1 John 1, 9, so to speak, and saying, I have sinned, oh God, forgive me. You know, that's not it. He is saying, I'm in big trouble, and whatever you need me to say, I'll say, uh, but just get rid of these grasshoppers. He's not changed in his heart. It it reminded me, as, as I read this, of the criminal who gets caught, and he's in prison, and he's sorry. But what's he sorry for? That he's caught and that he's in prison, not that he committed the crime. And that's Pharaoh's situation. He's sorry that this thing's here, but he's not going to change himself. He's not going to allow himself to be changed. He's still going to be the same hard-hearted man that he's been all along. Pharaoh has passed the point of no return. So God is confirming the hardness of his heart. This is the way you want it this is the way it's going to be. And as soon as the threat of the locust was removed, what does he do? He refuses to let them go as he has promised he would do. Obviously, if there was any repentance there, he would have said, oh, do it. As an expression of the truth of my repentance, go do it. No, he immediately hardens his heart. And I think his his counselors stood around there now, basically speechless. It's kind of like being in an aircraft where the pilot has allowed it to get out of control and is starting to dive towards the earth in an accelerating rate, and you're trying to get the pilot to do something about it, and he's just twiddling his thumbs. I don't know what to do, you know. And if I mean, they feel like they're headed for ultimate doom, and Pharaoh is the only one who can do anything about it, and he refuses. The book of Hosea, don't turn there, but in the book of Hosea in verse 7 we read this, that they who sow the wind will reap the whirlwind, which means that they who live carelessly and rebelliously will reap disaster. And in Nahum we read this in the first chapter, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. As believers, that should keep us walking the straight and narrow. And as believers, that should help us to understand that justice is ultimately served. It may not seem like it here on this earth. Many times unjust things occur. But ultimately justice is maintained before the bar of the king of the universe no one, plea bargains, or anything else. We must either bow before the sovereign king and trust in his remission of sin in this life, or we must stand guilty before that same sovereign king and experience the punishment that would not have been ours had we accepted the, the, the work that Christ had done in taking our punishment for us. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't know about Jesus Christ. But Pharaoh has been presented the truth of the same sovereign God by Moses. And Pharaoh was given more chances than most to change, and he refused. Well, let's uh, look at the next few verses, at least read them, and uh, see what happens next. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Can you believe this guy? Even your little ones may go with you. Whoa. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Therefore our livestock too will go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind. For we we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He confirmed this hardness. And he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Be aware. Do not see my face again. For in the day that you, sh- you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You're right. I shall never see your face again. If I were Pharaoh, those words would hammer home like a pile driver. Well, we don't have time to develop this uh, story of darkness today. But this, of course, is the final plague that will occur before the plague that brings Pharaoh to his knees kills thousands in the land of Egypt, including the heir apparent to the throne, and enables Israel to have that picture that will give them an understanding of the plan and the purpose of God in the coming of Messiah in the story or the account or the practice of the Passover which will be what we'll look at as we get into the twelfth chapter of Exodus.